You are now entering Nowhere, California. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast sites like iTunes by searching Nowhere, California. A reminder, Nowhere, California podcast is our old feed, so please subscribe to Nowhere, California, our new feed. Also, you can get your Nowhere, California fix online by going to our official website, NowhereCalifornia.com, and emailing us at Nowhere underscore California at Yahoo.com. Ideas from everywhere, voices from nowhere since 2011. Welcome to Nowhere California Presents, our conversation with Ari Kirschenbaum. Hey everybody, uh, it's uh, Nowhere California Presents, so you know I'm flying solo. And it's been a while since I've done some of these phone interviews. I've missed them, and I'm glad to jump back in with this conversation with Ari Kirschenbaum, the writer and director behind the, a really great horror movie called Live Evil. I had a chance to check out a screening of this at the most recent uh, Stanley Kamikaze. It was a great film. Honestly, if anybody out there gets a chance to check it out, do it. It's a weird, twisted, dark horror mixed with comedy, drama, and everything like that. But as always with these conversations, I'm going to shut up here and just get right to it. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Ari. We are now joined by Ari Kirschenbaum. How are you doing today, man? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Um, I haven't done one of these phone interviews in a while, and I've missed them. <laughs> Uh, how you been since uh, the Stanley Kamikaze? That's where I first initially uh, quickly met you, but I did see this great movie, Live Evil. Oh, I didn't realize. I didn't put that together that you were there. One of the few people who was there. Yeah, I was. Um, I gave you my card during like the aftermath of the screening. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, now I remember. And it had like somebody with makeup on it. Yeah, me and uh, my co-host uh, with uh, mug shots. Okay. Okay. Yeah, now I remember. Uh, I've been I've been good. We're just you know plugging away. I'm trying to promote it, trying to get you know the best de- distribution deal we can get. That's cool. Are, are you going to be hitting any more conventions with that movie? Uh, I don't know about conventions. I, I think it's still being uh, submitted to festivals. The convention thing is a little hard because of the, obviously the competition is so great at a convention with all the panels, simultaneous panels, and people aren't really coming there for movies so i think you know the the best outlet for it is uh festivals uh if if you guys decide to do another convention i would highly recommend um days of the dead when i was watching yeah days of the dead they do a convention in la i think they're doing it in april this next year and as i was watching live evil at kamikaze i was like this would be probably very perfect for days of the dead yeah, well, I'll have to definitely check that out. Yeah, I'll uh, email you uh, their email address and everything and their website so you can check it out. Oh, do you know them? Um, we've covered the convention a couple times, so... Okay. Yeah, so I'll, I'll send you the info. But to, okay. I guess, to get rolling with everything, uh, when did your passion for filmmaking begin? Uh, that, that, that's been since, since I was a little kid. Uh, since the days of, uh, you know, uh, Super 8, and then... That was br- very briefly because it was the tail end of Super 8 and the birth of uh, video. So, you know, I would, uh, my dad would bought like one of the first, you know, um, consumer camcorders, but you had to haul around the VCR with you. So, you know, I'd be running around the backyard with, uh, with the VCR and the giant camcorder <laughs> trying to recreate the Terminator with my neighborhood friends. That's awesome. So. Hey, at least you had a crew ready to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's all in camera, too. So it's like, all right, got to shoot this in order and everything, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I've always been a, you know, a big 
fan of like stop motion stuff and you know horror films and creature features and I had I had Fangoria's and hanging on my walls but you know of course they had to be in plastic wrap so they wouldn't get damaged and I've got to keep them in pristine condition (laughs) right although now I think most of them got thrown away I still have I still have some of them and I was looking for in case like uh, Tony Todd was going to come to the Comic Con I was looking for one that would have like you know his Night of the Living Dead or something Candyman and I was going to bring it and, and show it, but uh, he, he wasn't going to come to, to the Comic-Con. He showed up for, uh, I think, Diabolique. Oh, that's cool. Santa Fe. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were talking about your uh, fandom towards horror, so you've been always a horror fan, mostly in that genre? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of a lot of things, you know. I, I love fantasy, I love horror, I love science fiction, but I also love, you know, like, straight drama and stuff, you know. A lot of my favorite movies are straight drama movies, um, but yeah, I've always had a soft spot for for horror. It's like one of the I don't know. I, I was allowed to watch questionable movies when I was young, so it, it made an impression. I remember I think staying home from school once, being sick, and and having like a horror marathon of like uh, American Werewolf in London, and that just blew my mind. So. Um. In, like, past interviews with, like, Eli Roth, he always talked about how his uh, parents and family always encouraged him. What, were your family the same way? Did they encourage your love for oh, blood yeah. and splatter? Um, they were a little, as any parent would be, they were kind of uh, a little cautious when it got into the, you know, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or this, was, this was right when the Nightmare on Elm Street movies were huge. And they, I, I don't know if they let me see those in the theater. I remember I wanted to see Evil Dead 2 in the theater, and I couldn't get in. One, I think, because it was not rated, and, and two, my parents didn't want, it, want me to see it. But uh, they were encouraging otherwise. They would, they would let me see most stuff. And, and I remember uh, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, and it came out on video, my parents would, like, edit out the really scary part. Oh, wow. And then let, let us watch, you know, uh, the rest of it, like, you know, uh, the face melting. So there'd be this jagged, horrible uh, VHS cut in it, you know, where it does that res thing, where once you make a cut, it, it, it goes through the entire picture and gets all wobbly. So you're like, what happened? What happened? It's like, oh, that was too scary for you. Oh, wow. So they're basically their own uh, version of the TV edit. Exactly. Um, you're, you just mentioned a lot of classic, classic movies. Uh, were there any certain filmmakers you looked up to as you were growing up and started uh, fine-tuning your craft? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, at, at first, I, I think with like uh, all budding filmmakers, you go through a Spielberg uh, phase where you, you, know, you think he's the end-all and be-all. And, uh, and then gradually you start getting into other people who have different influences. And, and somebody who always stuck with me, because I think he's very underrated, and you can constantly return to him and appreciate things in a different different view as you get older, was, was John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. He, he, he was a huge influence. And I think my... 
if it wasn't Big Trouble in Little China, it might have been The Thing. I think it was The Thing was my first John Carpenter movie. And that was just, you know, that was just a, a, a game changer. Uh, because it, it's just so dark and it's so, it's, it, I think it's his most, his best put together movie. And, and what was also so great about his movies, I, I, I'm a huge fan of the underdog and he always seems to never get enough credit. So I, I, I for some reason that just, that just, uh, rings true with me, like an, an underdog who's kind of ahead of his time and is, is like, kind of like a meat and potatoes director, but it's just done with such style and and um, shorthand that that you can just appreciate it forever. Oh, totally agree, totally agree. And I guess I'm, I'm going to throw this out real quick too. Uh, I guess from one movie fan to another, what were your thoughts on the remake of The Thing and the recent rumors of a remake of Big Trouble in Little China? <laughs> uh, I, I, of course, was, was very upset that they that they're trying once again to remake uh, Escape from New York because that's one of my favorites of his, and I, it just doesn't need to be remade. And and the uh, the proof that the, the sequel was so bad that John Carpenter made himself is, I think, proof enough that you don't need to remake it. But uh, I didn't see the, the prequel to the thing. I thought it was blasphemous. The uh, concept of even doing it because. Uh, if you watch that, if you watch the original thing, not the, the Howard Hawks one, but the uh, Carpenter's one, yeah, that whole beginning, the sequence, the whole beginning with them going to the other camp and finding what happened, exactly what's going to happen to their camp, is just so perfect, it's such a perfect setup, it doesn't require an entire story, because you know it's literally going to repeat itself in the next camp. So you don't need to repeat yourself in the you know with a, an entire movie devoted to something you know already happened. That's that's the basic problem with prequels is there's no there's no stakes. Yeah. And that's the even worse because you know everybody died. I didn't even see it, so I don't know if they actually cheated and didn't have everybody die, but you know everybody dies. So yeah. I, I didn't even watch it. I have watched the other ones, the other remakes, because I think. He, uh, Carpenter, and maybe Romero, there's one other one, who are the most remade, who have the most remade films, and every one of Carpenter's is bad, that are remade. Yeah. You know, Assault on Precinct 13, didn't like it, The Fog was terrible, uh, what are the other ones? Uh. Remade so many of his, Halloween, I didn't like that, even though that's pretty well regarded, the remake. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of Rob and everything, but also, too, it's just, leave classics alone. Yeah. Yeah. But if for some reason, they, they think that, that uh, Carpenter and Romero are so, I guess, low-rent and underappreciated that it, that you're not really messing with classics, but you are messing with classics. You're messing with genre classics that have affected every film in that genre from then on. I mean, you can still see Carpenter and everything, and people are still imitating Carpenter People are still imitating Romero, you know? Uh, very true. Um, I guess to get back to your journey to filmmaking and everything, uh, did you go to school to fine-tune your craft, or did you go kind of a trial by fire? Uh, I went to school for painting. I got my degree in painting, 
which I don't really know if it lends itself too much. Uh, I was doing very narrative painting, and I was not. I was in the. I was in my own minority in in painting school because everybody was doing like abstract stuff, and I was doing twisted narrative stuff, and and it didn't gel. So I felt like you know the total outcast, and I, I was trying to make art that had like basically what I was just talking about with the thing where, you know, this entire story was implied by, you know, sparse images, you know, when they go and they discover, they see the, that corpse of the guy with his neck cut and, and all that, uh, burned out holes in the walls, you know, and, and they're trying to piece together what happened. These little, the, the, the power of like one image to imply an entire backstory, but without telling you the backstory. That's what I was trying to do. And, with, with my paintings in school and then once I graduated it, it you know it, it evolved into like writing wanting to do like a comic book and then just getting frustrated with that and writing a script and trying to get scripts done and getting frustrated with that and realizing you know, like you know there's nothing stopping you from making your own film you don't need Hollywood's permission to make your own film so why not go do it because that's, you know, what everybody wants to do anyways. That's your goal, so go do it. You don't need the permission. You just need to think of something that you can do with what you have. Exactly. Uh, basically, don't live in a why, live in a why not. Right. Yeah. So it, and I was in California trying to get scripts made, and then I had to leave California and go back to the East Coast, which is where I'm from, to make my first movie because it's just in California it's it's not very friendly for the independent for the super low budget independent because you can't get locations people will not work for less so we went out to uh, Connecticut outside of um, right outside New York and we shot around New York and Connecticut much easier because you have all these you have all these acting pool acting talent pool, you have crew, you have, you know, film schools, we used a lot of uh, film school students, and, uh, like, my my DP was, I think he was a film school student, I'm not sure, he, he's a DP now for uh, Orange is the New Black. Wow. And, yeah, he, DPs get to go, like, move up, if you're good, you can move up, like, lightning, and uh, it's one of, the, like, the few, few, uh, industry jobs where it's like constantly working good dps are constantly working so uh yeah it was you know <laughs> it was a do it instead of talk about it you know I, I can't stand just endlessly talking about you know scripts and endless revisions i mean people would people would constantly have you rewrite new person to meet they want a new rewrite yeah, so it's a ladder oh, presentation. Concept. Yeah, no matter how good the script is, they want to put their spin on it. So they, they're like, well, you know, I've been developing it with him, so it goes to the next person. And by the time you get, like, a, a no, you have no idea whether the no was because of all those people who had you rewrite or because the project sucked in the first place. Very true, and that, that's kind yeah. of the reason to jump into the, the directing, writing aspect of it. What was that? Uh, that's kind of a good reason to make become your own director towards your own material. 
Right. If if you you know if you want to tell stories, then tell it yourself. I mean, it is a collaborative uh, effort. You do need other people to do it, but you know why why wait until somebody gives you the okay? Why wait until you can get that big you know budget? But when you know the chances of that big budget are are not are very slim, and to get it, you are gonna ha- it's gonna suck. Not your soul, but all your energy to want to make it. Yeah. So it's like, why don't you use that energy to making something smaller, you know, and put put your brain power into figuring out what would be a great gimmick, a great story that's small and will not feel small or not feel hindered by being small. Very true. That's uh, a good way to look at it. Now to jump into the world of live evil, um, I first was uh, introduced to this movie in an email before Kamikaze invited me into the screening, and as soon as I saw the trailer, I quickly replied saying, I'm there, I'm going to be there, I want to see this movie. Um, yeah, what was the inspiration towards the development of the story of live evil? Uh, it's actually a, a really old script. I wrote it while I was in California, like, and uh, I'm trying to remember what the, how it started, but I'm, I'm almost sure that it started, like, linear. I just started writing it. I wanted to have a cop that, that goes to a house and, like, to investigate just, like, a party. Like, a party's making too much noise. And what if, that, you know, at this party, just all hell broke loose? And it's a sleepy town. And this tiny sheriff's department has to deal with basically what could be the end of the world, starting in a you know a macro, a macro or micro, and then becoming macro and you know blooming to to like epidemic scale. That that definitely uh, hooked me into it, and uh, when I first <laughs> saw the trailer, and uh, you you were talking about that this script kind of was sitting for a while. Um, how long did it take you to write the script, I guess, when you decided to pick it up again and develop it into the feature? Um, I think it was, it was written really fast. I think, uh, and in spurts, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember what, at what point I got blocked, you know, and couldn't go further and took some time, but I would say that it didn't take more than, you know, a couple weeks to write the script total that's cool um and like we we're talking about too that you were also the director of this movie too yeah. what what do you look for in your cast and crew during your planning process what are the different aspects of the people you want to surround yourself with during a production yeah that that's a that's a really interesting thing because uh i don't there's just like something innate when you look at somebody's real or your or somebody's credentials that you're looking for, I'm always looking for somebody who's not going to be, like, too, too, I wouldn't say too good skill-wise, but, like, all right, their their credentials are too good. They're not going to want to work. One, for me, (laughs) they might be a problem attitude-wise of, like, I don't want, I don't want somebody on the crew who feels that they're too good for the, this tiny little budget, you know? Where, where they're not going to be helpful. You kind of want somebody who has talent 
but no one's giving them the chance. Those are the best type of people to work with. If you can see that they have an eye or they have skills and they haven't they haven't hit the big time yet, they haven't got a big break yet, those are the best people to work with because they'll put more into it. And and a lot of the cast was like that, especially the a lot of the leads were, were, were like that where they're they they're waiting not waiting for it, but they you know, they enjoy it. They still enjoy it. They wanna, they wanna get a big break, so they're hungry, so they're willing to work hard. Yeah. Yeah, you have an amazing cast with this because, like we talked about, I, I was at the screening at Kamikaze, and there was a great Q and A afterwards, and you had a great group of people with you. There was one guy I forget who it was that was in the military before uh, yeah, jumping uh, into Adam. it. Yeah. Adam Flores. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that story again? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, his uh, development into the movie, I guess? Uh, we, well, we were looking for... We, there's a role called the new kid, and he doesn't get a name, and I, I won't spoil it because he's just considered the new kid. Yeah. And we were we were looking like at everybody. Everybody came in to audition for the new kid. I think Ed and Car- Ed Ricker and Carter, the, the ones who play the two um, mercenaries... They actually read for the new kid. Um, I think the actress who plays really Rosie read for the new kid because we were not like gender biased on that role. Could have been a you know woman, could have been a guy. So uh, after we had seen everybody, he came in and he had that that obviously he had the the military and demeanor that would translate well into a cop to a you know rookie but he also had this like innocent kind of uh cipher about him so uh his role was actually a little bit bigger it got cut down just because there's a section in the film that that is really critical timing wise back in the station where everybody's everybody's talking endlessly you know so and it's a lot of expo- not exposition, but a lot of background, a lot of you know, a lot of drama. So we that part was that was the hardest part to edit. So we had to speed it up. And unfortunately, some of his stuff got got cut. But uh, he's he's still good. <laughs> he still he still makes a makes an impression. Yeah, like I said, uh, everybody in that cast definitely made a great impression. And that, I guess that could lead into the next question: uh, How was the production of the movie Live Evil, and, like, basically how was the morale and the overall experience of the filming process? Uh, you know, you, you, you kind of look back at stuff with uh, rose-colored glasses, but it, I, I, I kind of refused to do that because it was brutal. It, it, was, it was just brutal. It was, uh, we had problems from the beginning, and we, we had, like, delays, and then, uh, like I said at Comic Con, we had a we had replaced the lead actress uh, six days in. So on a twenty-one day shoot, six days in, we had to replace her, and we did not. Re- I think we only extended like maybe one day or two days. So basically, we had to make up for those six days by reshooting and shoot everything else. So it was really like say like a 22 or 23 day shoot minus six so you know we it was down to like a 18 
18, 19 day, nah, well, less than that, like 17 day shoot. So it, it, it was tough and, and people, there was, there were some elements, uh, which I don't really want to name, but we're, we're constantly creating drama of, of scheduling problems, of, uh, actors, you know, actors who weren't causing problems were, were, you know, just kind of general friction going on. Yeah, it, and, and it was cold, and uh, it was all nights, all nights. I think I don't think there was a single day. Well, actually, we could shoot in the in the uh, sheriff's station during the day. Well, actually, no, we couldn't. We had to wait till they closed <laughs> to shoot. So it was all nights. It was the middle of the winter, and so it was cold. It was hard. It was hard to get the shots. It would, and and a lot of things were cut, like. Uh, uh, scheduling wise, so uh, and 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 uh, resources wise, so it was it was a constant creativity battle. But that's that's independent filmmaking is is you know compromising, going all right. Well, we don't have this location. We really needed a church with a this, so you know we have to do make this. Yeah, exactly. This location, so you change things, and I mean we would lose locations. We had like. Uh, and in independent filmmaking, you gotta you gotta uh, your locations become multiple locations. So uh, we had like this uh, uh, hospital that they were closing down that we were going to build in and create the jail and create all these other other locations, and then that failed at the last minute. So it was just it was just constant, and we had to fire our production designer because he wasn't doing his job. Yeah. He was supposed to build the jail. And we were like, all right, we're shooting the jail on Monday. Where is it? Oh, you didn't do it. No. <laughs> so it, it, it was rough, which is why, like, the editing took took so... Well, the editing didn't take as long as the effects. The effects, a lot of the effects were not just effects that you can see, but a lot of invisible effects to fix things. And uh, I did, like, I, I was telling this to... An, to another interview that I think there are like almost 400 effect shots in the movie and you know there's a lot of them that you can't see but there's a lot of them that you can see and I had to do them all myself <laughs> uh, and honestly you did a great job on the visual ones because the overall look of the film especially the zombies I won't go into the eye color thing because that to me that's a pivotal point of the movie yeah. but the design of I guess the undead well, to me, it was amazing. What what led you to that look for the zombies? Um, well, those those are done by Kyle Kyle Thompson. I hope I'm getting his name right. Sometimes I'm blank on the names, but he. Uh, I wanted to do like the the you know the, the really old you know zombies. Like the, if the dead come you know from 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 the ground, they're they're rotted, they're total shambling you know, skeletons type stuff, and and I just thought it'd be great to have, you know, skeletons dressed to, you know, in their best, because that's what they're buried in, and have them do all this stuff, and, you know, that it goes back to, like, Ray Harryhausen and, you know, Sinbad with the skeletons fighting and stuff like that. I was just, some, some imagery you can never get out of your head, and the only way to work it out is to do it your, do your own version, you know? Oh, definitely. And uh, I guess another question towards the special effects. 
Um, there's a chapter aspect to this movie. What led you to that development of the script where it's kind of things get blocked off? And I guess in the most non-spoiler way possible. Um, I just thought that uh, there needed to be some breathers, some breathing space on some of it. And um, also, I mean, it's, it's a tool. It's definitely a tool. And you can use it to set things up, you can use it to speed things up, you can use it to slow things down, and as you're editing, you could get, you know, you come up with all these ideas, so, uh, you know, I, I came up with this idea that that uh, it would benefit from having these chapter markers, and um, originally they, they, they looked different. I had, for a while there, this very uh, 80s Disney-esque black hole slash water in the woods type vibe to the to the chapter things and then but it was just too much uh too much of another another layer yeah there's there's a tipping point where it's like all right this is too much style and get on with it Definitely, like, um, when it, when the first chapter revealed itself, I kind of was like, well, this is definitely a Tarantino vibe with the chapters. Yeah, it, it's hard to do, it's hard to do a chapter thing without getting reference to, you know, Tarantino. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, because he does it, and he does it so well. Yeah. That, you know, it's, it's hard to do that anymore. I guess if I made the, made the font super, super tiny or something, and, and the chapter headings were you know, uh, not clever or not trying to be clever, then you can get away with it. But then you're just watching it. You might as well just put a location and go, you know, 8 o'clock, Copeland Estate, which doesn't serve much, pur- you know, purpose. Yeah, well, honestly, you did a great job on the chapters. And like I've said before, and over, overall on the movie, it was a great film to watch. Um, Thanks. From the original draft to the finished product, what are your thoughts on the final product? Final product. Uh, I guess. I guess it. You know. Uh, I'm. I'm happy with it. It read different than it turned out. Um, it, it read scarier. It read uh, darker, uh, if that's possible. But um, it didn't. The humor. It was still funny, but the humor didn't come out as much and and that's probably the actors who brought out the humor more and then once they were bringing it out then uh you kind of run with it you know no like you 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 can't be you you don't have the budget to be a big action thing you don't have the budget for you know huge gore effects and all this stuff i'm not a big fan of just of just gratuitous gore anyways so you know what what's more scary more disturbing is when they don't show it and they hint hint at it oh yeah you know it's like off-screen violence is worse than on-screen violence so the unknown uh, is more scarier than the known right right so i was like what there's there isn't anything that i could show that what one person's what's in their head won't be worse they can come up with something infinitely worse than what i show them so if i just hint at it then they'll come up with their own. It's a good way to do it. As more people see the movie, uh, what are your hopes for the future of Live Evil? Uh, I, well, I hope it. I hope it makes its money back. For one, I hope people appreciate it, and I hope. 
I hope it's something that people can rewatch because, you know, to me, the best movies are the ones that you can rewatch. You know, you can have a great movie and it wins all these awards and stuff, but if you never want to see it again, then how great was the movie? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the movie that I, you watch over and over, like Ghostbusters, you know, those are your favorite movies and those you appreciate more and more. So if it, if it became like a movie that people rewatched, that that would make it all worth it. That's very true. Leading into this interview, I did watch it a couple more times, and I was noticing those little things where it's like, oh, I didn't see that at the screening. Right. Oh, I ca- <laughs> right. I, I love watching that you know uh, movie and then picking up on stuff that you didn't pick up on before. You know that that to me is is shows that it's it's a movie made by somebody who loves movies. That is that rings true with this movie, and I guess before <laughs> we wrap everything up. Uh, do you have any upcoming projects you want our listeners to know about, and where can we find you online? Uh, well, the, the, the website for the movie, and you can reach me through the website, is is live-evil-movie.com. And uh, I don't have too many projects. I still have, you know, I have scripts that I, you know you hope that you can get funding for and, and make. Uh, I have an animated thing that we've been working on forever, which is... Uh, an animated Sherlock Holmes, and we had the uh, uh, exclusive rights from the Conan Doyle estate. Oh, that's cool! But uh, that, that that's hard too. The animation game is even harder than the. It's like a subset of the movie uh, industry, where it's even harder because people will throw up their hands and go, "I don't, I don't know anything about animation." Yeah. Or it's a very closed, very closed industry. The animation industry. So that one's been a long time in the making, but you know, every once in a while, there's a there's a spike in interest, and and the men, momentum starts getting going, and it's all about momentum. You got to keep building momentum. You got to keep building momentum, and then hopefully it gets you to the the green light. That's very true. That's a goal for everybody. And with Nowhere, California, we have a particular question we like to end every interview with. So, Ari, I'm going to throw it to you. What is your favorite what-the-fuck movie moment? What-the-fuck movie moment? Uh, in what context? As in good or bad? Good or bad. Just that one moment in a movie that just pops in your mind right now that made you just go, what the fuck? Uh, I would say the last one that I had was for... Is it? I, I know I'm going to get the title wrong. In her skin, or let me see. Uh, if you, the one with Scarlett Johansson. Oh yeah, in her skin. The yeah, I've heard some mixed things on that one. Yeah, that 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 uh, was the last movie where I was like, "What the fuck?" Because I, I loved it. I personally loved it, but it started off like it was going to be the next greatest horror film that I've seen in a long, long time. And then it, it constantly switches gears. But uh, yeah, that's definitely the last, last film that uh, <laughs> I said, what the fuck? That's, that's awesome, man. I'm That's on my Netflix queue. Like I said, I've heard mixed things on it, but it's Scarlett Johansson, so I will be watching it eventually. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's almost... A mind blower, and it and it kind of drops the ball because you're like, 
how are they going to end this? There you have it. That was my conversation with Ari. Thank you once again for taking the time out to talk with us. The movie is Live Evil. You can find them on the internet by going to live-evil-movie.com. If you get a chance to see a screening of this movie, do it. You will not regret it. So this has been Nowhere California, and can't wait to do another edition of Nowhere California Presents.